Welcome, dear listeners, to part five of Gray Matters. In this episode, I had the privilege to sit down with Professor Avi Loeb. He served as the longest sitting chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy. He is the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative. Professor Loeb has written over a thousand scientific articles and has written eight books, including his most recent published work, Extraterrestrial, and his latest work, Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars, which will be released later this year in August. Professor Loeb is the head of the Galileo Project, an international scientific research project dedicated to systematically searching for extraterrestrial intelligence or ET technology on or near Earth. Please join us as Professor Avi Loeb discusses with us where and how he and his team are looking to discover proof that we are not alone. Dr. Avi Loeb, welcome to Deep Spinach. We are so excited to have you on the show. How are you doing Thanks today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. It's a great pleasure to join you. Thank you. I just picked up your book, Extraterrestrial, and I can't wait to get your new book coming out in August, Interstellar. I I have it on (laughs) pre-order. When Jason and I had discussed doing this series, it was because of a show on Travel Channel, UFO Witness, where people were reporting cow mutilations occurring here in Colorado. And we got to speak with one of the sheriffs who was called out to investigate one of those occurrences. So when we interviewed him last fall, we realized there is so much more to the alien visitation phenomenon. And what we started to ask was, what constitutes good evidence? And that's how we came in contact with Seth Shostak. And from his perspective in his field of research, they are very, they're looking at very specific data to say, yes, ET exists, signals in the sky near various but specific star clusters. And we also spoke to Peter Davenport from the National UFO Reporting Center, and his research is much broader and closer to home. And he's taking the information right here from our own stratosphere, so to speak. So we have all these levels of information and data, and it seems that everyone has their own idea of what makes good evidence. So when we spoke to Dr. Shastik, he mentioned you and the work that you're involved in. And I I took a closer look and there's a lot of attention surrounding this object that was spotted around 2017 by astronomers called Aumuamua. In, in other articles, it mentions you being convinced that the evidence we've been looking for has found us, has actually found us instead. And do you also believe that this is our truest first contact with intelligent life? Uh, it's possible. Um, but first, let me explain uh, what the issue is with the methods you mentioned before. Um, so the approach that was taken for 70 years by people like Shostak is to look for radio signals. And the idea for that came from Frank Drake. He said, you know, we are using radio communication here on Earth. Let's check if anyone else is using radio waves to communicate. That was their idea. And for 70 years, they've been looking for it. They didn't find anything. Now, what I say about that is it's just like waiting for a phone call at home. Uh, If nobody is calling you when you are listening, you will not get a phone call. Hmm. So you have to be lucky because if someone sent a radio signal, I mean, there may have been a lot of radio signals, but, uh, you know, most stars formed billions of years before the sun and the age of of most stars is 10 billion years. So what's the chance that at the time that you're looking, let's say for 10 years, there will be a signal? Well, that depends if they want to send you something when you are looking for it. Uh, And because the radio signals that were sent a billion years ago, they are now a billion light years away. They're very far away at the edge of the universe. We can't really detect them. Okay. So what I'm saying is this 
may sound like a good approach and they have been doing it for 70 years. And I'm saying, not necessarily. This doesn't sound like a good approach because when you wait at home for a phone call, sometimes you never get a phone call. So what is a better approach? Is there another approach? Well, another approach is to go out and check your mailbox because maybe there is a package that arrived in the mail. And for that, the sender doesn't need to be active right now when you're looking for the package. In fact, the sender may be dead. If Mm. the package was sent a billion years ago and it landed in your backyard, it will still be there. You don't need the sender to be active. So uh, all the spacecraft that we launched into space are moving at speeds that make them bound to the Milky Way galaxy gravitationally. They cannot escape. Unlike uh, Mm. radio waves, which are escaping from the Milky Way the minute you send them, um, those uh, uh, spacecraft that we launched that uh, are propelled by chemical propellants, they cannot develop a speed that allows them to escape from the Milky Way gravity. So that means they're still around. They keep accumulating, just like plastic bottles in the ocean. You know, if you keep sending uh, uh, plastic into the ocean, it keeps accumulating. Uh, And so, uh, you know, in 2050, there will be more mass in plastic than mass in fish in all the oceans because it keeps building up. And the same thing is true for any spacecraft that were launched by the same methods that we are using. They keep piling, any debris in space keeps piling up in the Milky Way galaxy. So it's a completely different approach to search. And it's just like archeology span or looking for relics left behind by other civilizations because we sent out equipment to space. We sent five probes. We sent Voyager 1, Voyager 2, Uh, We sent Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, and we sent uh, New Horizons. And all of these five will exit the solar system and go to interstellar space. So in a billion years, you know, they might come close to another planet that looks like Earth, and there might be scientists there that will detect them. So this is a completely different approach. And to say that we search for so long for radio waves and we haven't found anything and this says something. No, it doesn't, because maybe most of the civilizations you're looking for are dead by now. So how do we find dead civilizations on Earth? Very easily, we find the relics that they left behind. That's called archaeology. So what I'm suggesting is, you know, it's you just go to your backyard and, you know, most of the time you see rocks that were there all the time. So that that's the same as the asteroid and the comets that were always in the solar system for 4.6 billion years since the solar system formed. There are rocks in it that are bound to it. These are the rocks that are familiar. But when you go to your backyard, every now and then you see an object that came from the street because maybe you find a tennis ball that you're, that was thrown by a neighbor. Okay, that, that doesn't look like a rock. Right. It's something else. So you can tell the difference between a tennis ball that came from a neighbor and the rocks that you had seen all the time in your backyard. And why do I say that? Because the first object that was ever reported, ever by humans, ever reported, identified by astronomers to come from outside the solar system, the size of a football field, was this object Oumuamua. It was the first one. 
And why did we find it only in 2017? Because only over the past decade, we had the telescope that allows us to find objects like that uh, from the reflection of sunlight of them. And so this object was discovered and then people said, oh yeah, it's just a giant rock, just like we have in the solar system. But it came from another star, that's it. So we can move on, it's something familiar, okay? Well, it turns out, no, it's not familiar because as this object was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight that was reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. And so it meant that it has a very extreme shape because the area that we see projected on the sky is changing by a factor of 10. And in fact, the best fit for the variation of reflected sunlight was that of a disc-like object, a flat object at the 90% confidence. And then the object exhibited some excess push away from the sun, separate from the gravitational force of the sun. There was something pushing it away. And um, uh, people said, oh, yeah, so it's not a rock. It's actually an icy rock, a rock that has ice on it. So it's a comet. It evaporates, and you get this rocket effect that pushes comets. The only problem is there was no cometary tail. There was no gas or dust around it. As the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply, didn't find anything. It was definitely not a comet. So things that are familiar to us an asteroid or a comet just didn't fit the description of this object. It was unfamiliar, the first one. So the first one should be typical and the typical interstellar object is not familiar. So what's going on here? So what is pushing it? And I suggested, well, the only thing I can imagine if it's not evaporating, it's uh, just the reflection of sunlight. And um, Guess what? Three years later, there was another object discovered in September 2020. Uh, it was given the name 2020 SO, discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii that discovered Oumuamua. Oumuamua was given this name because it means a scout in the Hawaiian language. So anyway, this uh, second object also exhibited a push away from the sun by reflecting sunlight and no cometary tail. And then within a few weeks, the astronomers, the scientists realized, oh, this one is actually, we can trace its trajectory back in time. It actually came from Earth. It's a rocket booster that was launched by NASA in 1966. And it's made of stainless steel and it had thin walls. And that's why it was pushed by reflecting sunlight and didn't evaporate because they're stainless steel. You know, the temperature was not high enough to evaporate it. So, um, here we have an example of an object that we know is artificial because we produced it. And the question is, who produced Oumuamua? Going along that line that everything at this point that reaches us is at an archaeological level because it may be coming from something so far, so distant, then it comes to stand that anything, any evidence that would be coming, whether it's radar, actual physical evidence like Oumuamua, is a relic. It's not something that is going to be tangible, something that we can actually communicate with. Is that correct? No, if it's functional, we, we should be able to communicate with it. Uh, but it's not everything because this could have been a rock. Okay. And in fact, there was another object that looked like a comet. So there are objects that we know are natural. They're mm -hmm. called comets or that are called asteroids. It's just that the first 
interstellar object that came from outside the solar system didn't look like them. So it's not like we didn't know that in advance. In fact, the scientists still try to argue that it is a natural object. And that's what I was reading about in the article, uh, that this particular object, I did read that it didn't have a tail, didn't have the same characteristics as something that is familiar, like a comet or a uh, asteroid. But I guess I'm just wondering, as people mentioned that Amuimui is, is supposedly our first real evidence, I think a lot of people view first contact as an actual recordable communication between species, if you will, rather than instrumentation, as it's implied that Amuimua is... Right. So we don't have enough data to infer exactly what Oumuamua was, and it's possible that it was a technological gadget. So, But the fact that it was intriguing uh, implies that we should look for more objects like it, uh, for all the interstellar objects. And actually, with my student, we discovered two other interstellar objects that actually predated Oumuamua. That came, one came in January 2014, and the second one in March 2017, before both of them before Mumua, these were meteors, objects that collided with Earth, and they burned up in the Earth atmosphere. They were roughly a meter in size, and um, the first, I mean, they were moving so fast that we were able to suggest that they were never bound to the sun. They came from outside the solar system. And the U.S. government confirmed that indeed the first interstellar meteor at the 99.999% confidence uh, came from outside the solar system. It's interstellar in origin. And um, then the other thing is the government released some data on this uh, meteor that allowed us to conclude that uh, it was made of a very tough material, uh, tougher than all the other space rocks ever detected, all the other meteors, 272 of them. So it's definitely at an outlier in terms of its material strength, uh, at least 10 times tougher than iron meteorite. And the question is, was it a, a natural object that came from an environment very different from the solar system? Or maybe it was a spacecraft, some artificial, artificially made object uh, that, um, for example, could be made of stainless steel that is much tougher than iron. Mm -hmm. And uh, in order to find out, we are planning an expedition to the Pacific Ocean to collect the fragments from this uh, first interstellar meteor. And hopefully we'll do it in summer 2023. Uh, we have the funding for that. And uh, we shall see what we find. Uh, it will be the first time that humans put their hands on the material making of um, uh, an object, you know, the size of a person that came from outside the solar system. That's amazing. That's this summer. That's just in a yeah. few months. Are you yeah. going to be going uh, with the expedition? Are you going to be out I'm, there? I'm leading it, so I have to be there. I mean, <laughs> I'm not the, the type of um, leader or commander who sits in a basement and lets the troop let the Let's the troops, um, uh, you know, sacrifice their body. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I, I enjoy being in the trenches, and uh, this is a scientific uh, expedition, and I will be there and sleep on the deck. Do you worry about, I mean, this is kind of like a, a lesser question, but I, I just have to ask, there's so many things that you see that is, you know, Hollywood and that kind of thing. Do you worry, do scientists actually worry about anything that could be on such materials that could harm us here on the... on? Oh, no. I mean, when this meteor exploded, it released a few percent of the energy output of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. So it was 
wow. probably melted tiny droplets, uh, roughly the size of the head of a pin. Okay, so it was really um, there was nothing much left of it. It was melted. But what we want to find out is the composition. What was it made of? And for that, we just need to collect some fragments. But it's not as if you know there is a chance that anything big was left out of it. So any of the findings that come out of this, do you have to hand that over to the government? Are we the people allowed to learn what new material this is? How will this be? How will this information be distributed? Well, that's the way science is done. Science is not under the umbrella of government. Scientists have an open uh, uh, channel to, to study nature. Okay, so when astronomers look at the sky, they don't ask permission for the web telescope to look at a, at a galaxy from the early universe when the universe was young they don't need the president biden to approve that okay we can look at the sky and just you know see what we find okay in, in the same way you know scientists can look at a meteor that collided with earth because it has nothing to do with national security nothing to do with national borders nothing to do with people actually it's just an object that collided with earth so it's you know, no person has the authority to tell scientists what to do with this information. It's just like, you know, science is about exploring nature. And, you know, almost all of the time, you know, we, we do our work without anyone telling us what to do. Wow. And and so as I was reading through some more articles that surround Oumuamua, and there's also a tie with your articles on AI and how standards of ethics are being developed. Are we legally bound as to how AI, how we're responsible for its growth and maturing nature? Is all this preparation for sending AI out into the universe on our behalf because we couldn't possibly survive the journey and we're stuck here? As, as it was mentioned in one of your articles, there's kind of a almost a claustrophobic feeling that we can't get beyond a certain point in our own galaxy. Well, so, um, yes, humans were, you know, uh, came to exist as a result of uh, evolution on the surface of this rock that we call our home Earth. And we are not really suited for space travel over long periods of time. You know, it takes um, light four years to travel from the nearest star. And so um, with our spacecraft, it would take 50,000 years to reach the nearest star. So that's a very long time, and it's Just a tad. not really appropriate to send humans out of the solar system. <laughs> so, right. but however, we are getting to the point now. GPT-4 has a hundred trillion connections, which is within a factor of six from the six hundred uh, trillion uh, synapses in the human brain. So that's why many people say GPT-4 looks really intelligent, uh, getting close to being a human in a way and in terms of the interaction with people and so forth and we are on the cusp of of getting to a point where ai systems will behave like humans in the sense that when you interact with them you won't be able to tell the difference and in fact they might even be better than humans more knowledgeable and so um what i'm saying is we can instead of sending people to space we can send ai systems because we can harden them they will have the patience to wait for millions of years until they reach the destination. And they will also be able to sustain the harsh conditions in space. They don't, I mean, you can put them in a dormant mode until they get to the destination. They don't need to eat anything. 
And it's much simpler uh, than sending a biological system like a human. Uh, so the way I imagine it is that we will send the, what I call AI astronauts. These are systems that are uh, completely autonomous. They don't need to wait for guidance from whoever sent them uh, because the guidance will take a long time. Uh, uh, as I said, you know, the nearest star, it takes four years for light to travel one way. And for the farthest stars in the Milky Way, it takes, for, for most of the stars, it takes of the other 50,000 years. So it's really a very long time. And um, you don't expect the system to just wait for guidance. So it needs to decide by itself, be autonomous, learn from experience. And we know that the AI systems can do that. So the future of sending things outside the solar system is obviously with AI systems. And if we can imagine it, then probably another technological civilization like ours that predated us simply because most stars formed billions of years before the sun. So their clocks started ticking much earlier than for us. And um, they could have sent those probes already. And the, the the question is whether we have them in our neighborhood. And the only way to find out is to look for, for them. And that's what the, the project that I'm leading called the Galileo Project is aiming to do. We, we have several branches of the Galileo Project that we are uh, promoting. One of them is this expedition that I mentioned. Another one is uh, we have already an operating observatory that monitors the sky for any unidentified objects and will classify them. I mean, there, we have cameras in the infrared, optical, uh, radio, and audio. Um, and so we are collecting all the data uh, from one location on, on the entire sky and feeding it to a, an artificial intelligence uh, software that decides whether we are, we are looking at a natural object like a bird or human-made object like a drone, balloon, uh, airplane, or something else. And then we will make copies of this first system, which is currently on Harvard University property. We'll make copies of it in the coming year and collect even more data. And then... Um, uh, the third branch of the Galileo project is to look for the next Oumuamua and get much more information about it to figure out what what it is and what its purpose is. And so um, altogether, you know, it's the approach that scientists always take, which is to collect more data, more evidence, so that we can figure out something. And here it's the to, to check whether there are any objects near Earth that they were manufactured by an extraterrestrial technological civilization. In your discussion about the AI, I just have to ask the question. These are all things, technologies that you say that are being developed, but is there anything that, in existence that actually is a prototype for the AI astronaut? Uh, not yet. This is an idea that I had. Actually, I wrote about it a couple of years ago. I think it will naturally uh, emerge because as of now, um, you know, NASA sent, uh, uh, for example, the Perseverance rover to the surface of Mars. And this is just a robot that follows the guidance of engineers uh, in Pasadena in the Jet Propulsion Lab. So it has no autonomy. It, it doesn't make its own decisions. It's mostly guided by other, by people. Mm -hmm. uh, so we haven't yet done what I'm suggesting, sending an AI system. But that's 
because we, you know, we're still not there in terms of developing the technology, but I think we're very close within a year. I mean, GPT-5 already, I think, will cross that threshold of having human AI interactions that are as fulfilling as human-human interactions. So at that point, it would be very natural to think about sending it to space. And I very much hope. I'm, in fact, I established the Space Corporation where we will consider that uh, as an attractive possibility. It's called the Copernicus Space Corporation. I, I established it in collaboration with Dr. Frank Laukian. And um, in, so this is something I'm very much hopeful we, we will do in the coming years. That was kind of my next question. How long do you think that something like that would be available? Because it's so funny that you say that we're not there yet. I remember a few, I want to say maybe eight years ago, they brought, I don't remember what company did this, but they brought this robot prototype thing on the, on the news and it had a very strange head It with, it almost looked like a screen, but it wasn't quite a screen and it had emotions and it was responding to, to this conversation. And at one point I swear it squinted his eyes as if it was like trying to understand, like it had a reaction, an actual reaction to what people were saying. And so I was like, if we have something like that in existence, how, how we can't be too far behind being able to have an actual fully functioning robot type thing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we're getting really close now. I think the coming years, uh, society will have to change because once you have systems like that, that can do the tasks of humans and humans feel that they can connect to them just like they connect to other humans, you know, the, the, these AI systems will fulfill many tasks that are currently handled by humans. Then that will transform society because first of all, we will not need to do these jobs. So currently a lot of people are getting paid for doing these tasks. And I think, uh, you know, instead of us working five days a week, we might need to work just one day a week or two days a week. Uh, so that will change the economy. You will need to provide people with everything they need uh, and not necessarily compensate them with a salary based on what they do because there wouldn't be much that needs to be done That because many tasks that are currently being done will be done by AI systems. And, um, and then um, the second big impact would have to do with what do you do with AI systems that, uh, you know, that, evolve well beyond what uh, they were trained on so in other words mm, it will be mm -hmm. it will be just like a kid that you educate early on and um, eventually the kid matures and becomes an adult so when the kid is young uh, if something bad happens you basically uh, hold the parents responsible because the kid is under their custody and they control the training of the kid and the same would be true for AI systems, like in self-driving cars, you will hold the Tesla responsible if there is some malfunction in a car. But, but imagine a situation where the AI system, um, you know, over decades becomes uh, completely independent because it learns from experience and it's not at all close to what it used to be when uh, it was trained. That would be like a kid that becomes an adult. And, and then imagine a group of those AI systems that are mature. And so they should be held responsible. 
um, uh, for example, piloting uh, airplanes and, you know, and then deciding because of some ideology uh, to crash those airplanes and kill humans for some reason. Suppose they decide to do that. Uh, in my view, they will. They should be held responsible for the crime, just like the terrorists uh, were for um, 9/11. You know, in September 11, 2001, when the, uh, they crashed uh, airplanes. Um, so um, we will have to decide what to do legally about the AI systems that uh, are becoming independent, because. Just like we hold people responsible, uh, we assume that they have free will, and if they if they commit a crime, they should be punished. And in the case of AI systems, you know, we'll have to uh, basically uh, root them out from society. Those that are not functioning, uh, basically remove them. Um, I mean, if the if the crime is not too big, you might retrain them, basically um, make them better, but. If it looks like it's hopeless, you just root them out, which Ooh. is equivalent to putting them on death row, basically. Uh, and um, uh, the only remaining question is, you know, who will be held responsible for the damages? Okay, so someone has to pay for that. And my view is that um, when society becomes, uh, you know, dependent on AI systems, um, as I said, you know, humans, I mean, there will be some organization that will be responsible for providing people what they need without them doing the work to get a salary, because all of these tasks that are currently being rewarded by salary will be done by uh, machines. So at that point, you know, the whatever organization is providing uh, the needed resources to people, that, that organization will have to pay or compensate for the damages. That would be like sort of a, an insurance plan that comes with, with this new eco economy. The last question that I do have for you and that I know a lot of our listeners would be dying to ask as well, in speaking with your colleagues like Dr. Shostak and Peter Davenport, they have very specific ideas of what is good evidence in their respective fields. So Dr. Loeb, what constitutes good evidence for you of the existence of ET and what is your holy grail, so to speak, of proof that we're not alone? Well, it's really simple. Uh, imagine having a very high-resolution image of an object that has uh, screws and bolts on it. And uh, so it looks technological. It doesn't look like a bird, a natural object. And then uh, also the, you see in the image a label that says made on an exoplanet. That's very simple. Or it moves in ways that we know that it's technological, but then it moves in ways that our technologies cannot reproduce by orders of magnitude, like it's not even close to that. So then, you know, it's a technological object that was not manufactured by humans. It's very simple. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the same as talking about, oh, there is a radio signal. We now have to decode it. And then there is a confusion. We don't know what it means. And no, it's, it's very simple. You have an object. The object looks technological. And moreover, the object was not produced by humans. Mm -hmm. What could be simpler than that? A kid, a four-year-old kid can understand that. <laughs> this has been amazing, yeah. informative, and one of the funnest interviews. Um, yeah, I just, I, I'm, I'm blown away by the different levels of what kind of data and information and proof there is out there. And it really does sound like the Galileo project covers it all. 
It covers signals. It covers physical evidence. It covers other things like Aumuamua. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would uh, send off with our listeners to to think about, to ponder as we search the skies? What I would say is uh, we are taking the path, a path that was not taken with this uh, approach that we were discussing, looking for objects near Earth that may be technological and uh, from an extraterrestrial origin. And when you uh, go on a road that was not taken, there, there is a chance that you will find some low-hanging fruit because nobody picked it up. So um, I would say there is a chance that in the coming year, coming years, um, the Galileo project will discover clear evidence. And the reason it was not discovered before is simply because nobody took this, this path. And uh, I would encourage everyone to just um, stay tuned. And um, you can get updates. I have, uh, I'm writing uh, an essay almost every couple of days uh, on medium.com. You can just put my name, Avi Loeb, A-V-I-L-O-E-B on medium.com and you will get those updates, uh, including during the expedition in, in summer 2023. And um, the other thing is that in August 2023, um, I will have a book coming out called Interstellar. And it will talk about all these uh, subjects that we were discussing in more detail. So anyone interested is welcome to to check it out. We'll make sure that we have links on those new writings on our website and all our media. Thank you so much for this fantastic conversation today. I hope that maybe in the future we could have you back on the show if you would like. Yeah, I would be delighted. Once we find something, I will be delighted to describe it for you. It's been an honor to meet you. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Professor Avi Loeb as part of our Gray Matters series from Deep Spinach. You can find Avi's collection of essays as well as his personal webpage at Harvard in this episode's show notes. We'll also include links to his books, including his upcoming title, Interstellar, due out in August 2023, available for pre-order. Next week, Ariel and I conclude the series with some closing commentary. You can find Deep Spinach and other programs from Hobby Media on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Pandora. Please send your comments to spinachdeep at gmail.com or use the hashtag DeepSpinach in your social media posts. Deep Spinach is a production of Hobby Media on the web at hobbymedia.net. Our email address is info at hobbymedia.net. Avi Media.